I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the various intersections of food and feminism by sharing the stories of women from around the world and celebrating their unique ability to nourish themselves and one another. This episode tonight is part of a special mini-series featuring the makers at Fork Food Lab in Portland, Maine, a membership-based shared commercial kitchen and food-based business incubator. I'm Hope, and joining me tonight is my co-host, Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. And our guest this evening is Nina Murray. Nina is the owner of Mill Cove Baking Company and a current member of Fork Food Lab. Hi, Nina. Hello. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, so you own a baking company and what exactly are you baking and how did you start? How did you get into it? Uh, well, I bake crackers, specialty handmade crackers. Um, it kind of takes people by surprise when you tell them that you have a cracker company because people don't really think about crackers as something that a human being might make. Um <laughs> And I never, I didn't always dream of being a cracker lady, but uh, I had always dreamed of owning a bakery and I always loved baking. I got into baking almost 10 years ago and um, had always dreamt that I might own some kind of brick and mortar bakery. I had this idealistic view in my mind of, I think a lot of people have the same idea that you're baking like 12 scones a morning and you're drinking coffee and chatting with all your customers and totally unrealistic view of what it might be to own a bakery. Um, and after working in a number of other bakeries, um, I decided that it would be smarter to start something smaller and lower risk um, that required a lower financial investment as well. And I just had this idea um, to try crackers, packaged crackers. I thought wholesale would be fun. And, you know, people don't make crackers at home. They might make cookies or cakes or pies or all kinds of other things that we consider baked goods. But people don't typically make their own crackers. So I thought it would be something people would be willing to spend a little money on. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll start doing the wholesale business and maybe eventually parlay that into a brick and mortar retail bakery um, after I get my feet under me. But I've actually really loved the cracker business so much that I've decided I don't want a retail bakery anymore and I want to stay a wholesale cracker lady. That's that's awesome. Do you get called the cracker lady? I do. I get called cracker uh, girl sometimes, and I'm like, I am a lady. I am a woman. Not a cracker girl. The cracker lady. That's great. We need to get like branded T-shirts or something that say that. And then if we if we really like your crackers or we like cracker heads or something. Oh, I like that. I don't have the fan base name yet. That's great. That's great. Um, I mean, I definitely, it would have been something that I would not have, not that I wouldn't have thought you could have made at home. It's like, you could definitely, I knew you could obviously make, you know, just about anything at home, but yeah, it's not something that's like readily seen a lot. Um, is there anything special or intricate or different about making a cracker or is it just like ratios of, of ingredients? Yeah, it's really just like baking any other baked good. There's there's a ton of variety. There's some people make sourdough crackers or spent grain crackers or, you know, these Scandinavian crackers that are more of a wet dough that you can't actually roll out. Um, my crackers are more akin to like a pie dough. Um, and it's, you know, you can, there's so much variety. You can add really any kind of seasoning that you might like in the dough or on top of the dough and I tried to choose three different flavors that are quite distinct from one another. So one of them is an olive oil based cracker, uh, which is a lot crispier and thinner. And I put um, dill in that cracker because um, there's a lot of herbed crackers that typically tend towards, you know, rosemaries and thymes and more slightly more common herbs. And I thought uh, dill would be a fun flavor to pair with the olive oil cracker base. Um, and then my other two, I have a chowder cracker, which I thought would be fun with, you know, Portland has this great maritime history and there's this whole interesting history with Shabig Island in particular about um, 
a pilot cracker, which was a Nabisco product that was discontinued, but much beloved. And Shadig Island campaigned to have Nabisco bring the cracker back. Um, so I tried to create my own uh, sort of, it, not an imitation, but a hybrid chowder cracker, pilot cracker um, to carry on that, that maritime tradition of a sort of a sea biscuit, if you will. And then uh, my third flavor is um, my most popular flavor that everything is a butter-based cracker that that one's most akin to a pie dough it's very rich and buttery and they have poppy sesame onion and garlic in there and a lot of salt and it's definitely not um it's not a health food product per se though it's made with good ingredients (laughs) i am floored that you just said pilot cracker and when my mother listens to this episode she's just going to be jumping up and down (laughs) and like laughing because and she's going to be saying i told you so because, um, and I almost, I mean, Hope, can we edit that out? Actually, that would be really great if we could edit the part out about pilot crackers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can finish telling the story first. <laughs> well, because she, I was like, telling my mom that we were interviewing you, Nina, and I was like, you know, and she makes the crackers. And immediately my mom just does, does stops talking about the podcast and immediately starts talking about pilot crackers. I was like, I've never heard of a pilot cracker. We're not going to talk about that. We're talking about like her business and feminism. And she's like, no, definitely like pilot crackers are a thing. You should ask her about it. And I just, I thought it was my mom just taking a really weird tangent. You know, she does that sometimes. And then you just mentioned pilot crackers. Darn it. Damn it. (laughs) I'll edit out the part about your mom. (laughs) And I'm going to pause because I need to know what a pilot cracker is because I don't know. Oh, oh no no please I, I'm totally teasing about it um I hope, that, I hope that I hope that came off I was joking that like oh my mom was right you know we don't want her mom to be right <laughs> so Nina what is a pilot cracker because I have no idea clearly Sandy wasn't sure when her mom was telling her about them so please inform sure. us and our what is a pilot cracker well, it's interesting I've been doing a fair amount of research recently on the history of crackers in New England and it's it's quite fascinating and it all ties back to sort of a militaristic maritime background. It goes back way before, um, you know, before settlers came to the U S it, it goes back in almost every culture that there's some kind of a bread and water product that's baked within an inch of its life and has an eternal shelf life. And it would be the only shelf stable food that like soldiers or mariners could take with them on the battlefield or on voyages. And that's like one of the first things that came to the United States with European settlers. It would have come over with people sort of quote unquote, discovering the new world. They would have brought um, pilot biscuits or um, sea biscuits. There were a bunch of different names for them, but it's all essentially the same product, which is water and flour kneaded like crazy and baked forever until it dries out and lasts forever. And one of the first businesses in New England in Massachusetts was a cracker company. Uh, One of the first uh, packaged food products, I should say. Um, And the, the early ones were, you know, like essentially hard tack and not super um, edible for the common person, but eventually bakers started adding butter or, you know, leavening to the, dough and I believe that's where the pilot cracker came in is that it was sort of the next level hard tech um and it was popularized by Nabisco making the crown pilot cracker um which was particularly popular in Maine I think because of our maritime history um and people so they were like these little round biscuits pretty hard and um people would um I guess the the Nabisco cracker was maybe more of a rectangle but People would crumble them in chowders or eat them with butter on top or, um, you know, just have a little nibble on it as a very filling shelf-stable snack and travelable snack. And uh, it would thicken chowders, thicken soups. Um, And yeah, when Nabisco discontinued it, um, a woman on Shabiga Island spearheaded this project to campaign Nabisco to bring the cracker back, which they did. And it was discontinued wow. second time, unfortunately, but um, it was very beloved. And I actually had someone whose mother and himself lived on Shabig, still live on Shabig, who reached out to me before I decided to make a similar cracker and ask if I would contact Nabisco and get the recipe and start creating it myself. And he had all these statistics about how many cases they sold before they discontinued it and how maybe it wasn't enough for Nabisco, but it would be enough for me. Um, 
it was really sweet. And uh, I, so I sort of took, I wanted to make something unique to myself and to Maine, not an imitation of the pilot cracker, but what I came up with, I think is sort of a fun hybrid between the saltine and the pilot cracker. It's got, um, I use Casco Bay butter and Kate's buttermilk. So it's got a little bit of a tang, um, but it's sort of neutral. And I think it kind of fills the niche of pilot cracker, but also sort of a tasting cracker for a lot of, um, you know, wineries and breweries and cheese shops. They want a product that they can pair with their, in their tasting rooms with their products that doesn't overpower it. That's not super, it's not too neutral and it's not too overpowering. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was my, my homage to the pilot cracker. I don't know if I've offended anyone uh, by not making it more true to the original, but I hope, <laughs> I hope it's my own legacy. I'm incredibly curious because I, I now I'm gonna have to run out and get some of your crackers because I'm, I don't know, infamously known for my clam chowder, but I never serve it with crackers, like maybe like a hunk of whatever bread that we have around mm-hmm. but just because I never find any crackers worthy of my chowder <laughs> well I'll get you a bag like, old salt yeah. actually it's funny I so I decided to call them the old salt um because you know a salty old sailor would be an old salt a, a mariner um and I actually so I used to work um as a cook on a tall ship and so I reached out when I was um my friend Molly of all over at Maine was designing the bad graphics I reached out to three of the ladies that I that were either captains or chief mates on the boats I used to sail on and asked if I could use their likeness um, to be the old salt character on the front of the bag. Fun! Um, yeah, and my friend Rocky, she's like the most amazing woman. Um, in her 60s, I would say, um, she just decided, she's in her 60s now, but later in her life decided she wanted a new career and she um got her uh license and became a tall ship sailor and is like the most amazing woman and I have this photo of her at the helm with her foul weather gear on um and we use that image to create this great design on the bag so so she she is the old salt on the old salt bag that's amazing that's amazing um they must also be very flattered about that too I hope so. Although I realized afterwards that she is a vegan and the crackers have butter in them. <laughs> so she can't eat them, but I sent her <laughs> crackers. Well. Uh, tell us about some of the history leading up to you starting this business. You used to cook on a tall ship. I see that you used to have cooked at a few other bakeries around in Portland. What? How, tell us about a little bit about your background. Yeah, I... I got a liberal arts degree, which is useless in real life in practical ways, although I'm grateful for the education. But I find that a lot of people I know in the food industry have like English degrees or theater degrees or I have a music degree, which I don't regret, but I certainly wish I had had slightly more direction. I probably would have gotten a more practical degree. But I I realized after graduation that I needed a job and my first job was at a bakery and they took a chance on letting me bake, even though I, I, looking back on it now, I had no idea what I was doing, but, um, I really fell in love with baking. I was in Wiscasset at Treats, um, also a female owned business. And, um, I worked there for a year or two and then I got the itch and wanted to go to Portland and ended up at Standard, which was an amazing, uh, circumstance that I was able to work there. It's, it's such an incredible place. And I worked with a lot of, an amazing bakers and had a wonderful time learning more about European breads and pastries there. Um, and then I got the itch again. It's like a trend in my life after like two years, I want to try something new. And so uh, my brother had been working as an um, engineer on tall ships for a company called Sea Education Association, which is based out of Woods Hole, Mass. And they um, do educational sailing trips for college kids doing like semesters abroad, but it's essentially a semester at sea. Um, they're beautiful 134 foot schooners. They have a East coast boat and a West coast boat. Um, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, it's such a unique environment cooking on a boat. You know, you're in a, you have to provision enough food to last for six weeks at sea for 30 or 40 people with a variety of, um, you know, special food needs and you have to make your 
produce last and you're provisioning in countries that aren't necessarily English speaking countries or you're, you know, not able to stop anywhere on your transatlantic to restock produce. So you have to start getting creative with your canned goods or, uh, you know, you're in a galley that's moving all the time. And um, it was a pretty wonderful adventure. And I feel like I also learned quite a lot about how to cook in unusual circumstances and just make do with what you have. And um, it was a wonderful way to travel and see some incredible places. Um, I have rose colored glasses about those days because it was definitely a stressful job at times, but it was such a wonderful community. And again, a a very, um, a lot of strong women in that community like female captains female mates female crew um just really and wonderful men too it was just a really great experience sailing with them and I felt like after a couple years I wanted to have a little more stability again I think I alternate between wanting to be on adventures and when you're on the adventure you want to be home and then when I'm home I want to be back on the adventures but I decided to to come home for a while and work for Dandelion Catering, which um, I used to work with the founder of Dandelion, Christine Hayes. She used to work at Standard at the same time I worked at Standard. She had been there before I came on and she had started Dandelion um, and was getting really successful. And her husband, Christian, had joined her and they were doing really well together and um, they needed a baker. And so they really let me have a lot of free reign. They were, you know, they didn't have a designated bread or pastry person at the time. Um, They were just sort of making bread and pastry when they could and doing the savories as well. So this was the first time they'd split off the bread and pastry as a separate program. And um, they put a lot of trust in me, which was wonderful to be creative and come up with new menu items. And um, that's actually when I started making crackers for the first time because they had been buying wholesale crackers to put on cheese boards pretty much every wedding and every corporate event pretty much any event they were doing had a cheese board and they would build these gorgeous cheese boards and um we started to realize you know why are we buying we're making everything else in house why are we buying the crackers so I started making um some fun cracker flavors and trying those out and they were a big hit um and that was kind of the seed of my idea even though I didn't realize it at the time Uh, just seeing how excited people got about a a handmade cracker. So yeah, Dandelion was a wonderful job. I worked there, I want to say for almost four years. And and right after Dandelion is when I decided to start Mill Cove. That's awesome. That's a wonderful journey and very, very varied. Um, Even though you kind of have the same theme of cooking and baking, it's many different um, takes on it. So that's cool that you just keep following like I'm feeling this itch right now. I'm feeling this, you know, whim or this, you know, vibe that I want to chase for the moment. And uh, then it left you to starting your own business. Yeah, it's been, it's been a fun journey so far. And I think there will probably be a lot more twists and turns ahead for me. I, I do get the itch. I've been uh, doing Milko for three years and I'm feeling like um, I want to grow it. You know, I'm at another, another point where I want to make a change of some sort. And I'm excited to see where that ends up taking the business. That's cool. That's very cool. And who, who knows, maybe you'll make like, you could become a cheesemonger and then we people will just go to you for all their cheese and cracker needs. One stop party shop. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, we usually wait to the end to ask people what their, um, you know, future vision of their business is, but it sounds like you're already kind of thinking about it. Do you have something in mind or is it just, just an itch at this point? I am constantly thinking about what I should be doing differently or doing next. I feel like it's really easy to look back on where you started and realize how little you knew and what you wish you had done differently growing the business. And so I am constantly thinking about what I didn't know the last three years and what I know now. And that makes me think in the next three years, what am I going to think when I look back on where I'm at now and what don't I know now and trying to get ahead of it, if that's even possible and anticipate a little bit what I wish I had done differently for my future self. So I'm trying to think of, you know, my, I think the biggest part is identifying what you want for your business, what future you want for it. And I can see a couple of different options for Mill Cove. Um, But I think ultimately I really want it to be a strong regional brand. I don't necessarily need it to be a national brand. I want it to 
you know, stick to its main roots and use main ingredients and employ main people. Um, but I'd love, I'd love to grow the business to the point at which it's sustaining um, a larger staff than just me and one part-time person, because that's not enough right now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in this growing phase where I've picked up several distributors and the business feels like it has legs right now and I want to, I want to grow my accounts and grow my sales and hire on a couple more people and, um, maybe, you know, free up, you know, I'm very involved in production still. Um, so I'd love to eventually, um, have a staff that can do the production a little more than I, you know, step away a little bit and do some more, um, product development potentially add some new products to the line. Awesome. I was just looking up at the pictures of the, the old salt, the woman on, on the, with the big, oh, it's not, gosh, uh, what, it's not a steering wheel. What do they call it? Um, this is a ship's wheel. What is it? Just a wheel? The ship's wheel. Yeah. Ship's wheel. Okay. Um, we should probably edit that out to any of my, my family members who hear me not know what the shipping wheel is called. They're going to be so disappointed in me. <laughs> You're making me do a lot of editing. I know. Episode. I need to really get my act together. Truly. Uh, um, now, we're talking about your business, like growing and changing and things. You have a lot of really interesting partnerships that you do with other local businesses. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the relationships that you've built and some of the partnerships that you've made? Sure. I mean, I think more broadly, um, not specific partnerships, but in general, being at Fork has been all about partnerships in that we all support each other. Every business there has been so supportive. You know, there's always someone who is behind you in their business stage and there's always someone who's ahead of you in their business stage. And I've just found that that everyone I've come in contact with at Fork has been so willing to share knowledge and contacts and whatever else. Um, so I would say those all feel like mini partnerships to me every day. But then more specifically, um, a lot of partnerships that I have right now have grown out of the coronavirus um, need to sort of move things online, you know, mobile, you know, online groceries and um, sort of um, sort of fun little things that that make people feel like they're still able to go out. So 1820 Winery offering a wine, cheese and cracker pairing with um, three or four different products. Um, Amanda owns AT20 Winery. She's an amazing female business owner, and she reached out to me and to the cheese shop to um, start this partnership, which has been great. She's really good at um, supporting other local businesses and promoting us, and she got us a bunch of um, televised interviews and articles, and so that's been wonderful. People sort of pick up a little date night package from her. Um, there's been an amazing online market that the um, Lost Kitchen up in Freedom started, Erin French, um, and even getting product up there has been a partnership um, because it's, <laughs> it's a long drive and I work with a few distributors, but that's sort of outside of the realm of distribution um, within Maine, at least I've found it's hard to get things sort of further north right now. Um, so my friend Lynn Rowe, who owns Tortilleria Pachanga, another amazing uh, female-owned business. She makes corn tortillas um, that are incredible. And she has a delivery route every Friday that goes um, all the way up the coast, up to sort of Blue Hill, Bangor. And she has sort of been um, coordinating a, a drop-off for a number of businesses. Myself, Black Dinah Chocolates, I believe, um, Night Move Bread, um, Empanada Club. She's she's sort of gathering all these goods and bringing them up to Freedom every Friday for the Lost Market or Lost Kitchen Market, which has been amazing. Um, and yeah, there's just been there's been so many collaborations that. Everyone just wants to support local products now more than ever. I think we're recognizing that it's like we've we knew this all along, but we kind of let it get away from us that you have to support the products and the businesses that are local to you because that that may be all that's available when supply chains are interrupted. And I've seen a big spike in um, sales in orders from local businesses. Um, 
Rosemont Market has been doing really well with our products and they've been great at pushing local products. You know, all those, all those customers feel like little partnerships with everyone's like rooting for you and pushing your product over something that's, you know, um, a larger brand that's nationally distributed. They're, they're saying, you know, the cheese shop of Portland is always like, you know, we push your product. It's the closest product that it's made closest to us. And anyone that comes in and asks for a cracker, we point them to you first. And so that's, that's all felt really wonderful and it is making a difference in my business, which is great. That's such a wonderful sense of like community. And I feel like it's kind of unique and maybe it's just because Maine's a little bit smaller population wise that we're like able to have those really close bonds. But also, I just feel like our community here loves food. Absolutely. We really do. Yeah. And, and Maine products, you know, I think I, I've heard some people say it a little bit derogatory, but um, or, you know, a little like joking, you know, about like teasing Mainers, you know, if you're not from here, but like Maine really does have a sense of like, if you're from here, that means something, you know, if you're born here, that means something. If you're not born here, you're from away. And so, you Take know, offense, Sandy. I know we have an outsider in our midst here. Oh, with us. <laughs> well, um, I even, uh, I was born in Maine, but neither of my parents were. So I think I'm not, I believe it's three generations that, uh, <laughs> The hardcore yep. winners require. That's right. There are rules to this. Ooh, there, there are. are. <laughs> One of so, my offspring was born at Maine Med, so does that give us any points? That counts, yeah. Maybe okay. for him, but not for you guys. The other one was born in Florida, though, so, which <laughs> is not where I'm from either. <laughs> your demerits. <laughs> um, yeah, just I wonder, if, you know, I think that does mean a lot to say, you know, this is a local Maine brand and if for all of the other good reasons and wanting to, you know, support and everything and knowing you personally and all those that good stuff. I, I do think that we just, you know, we, we, we like our state and we want to we want to promote things that are from here. And I also noticed when you were, um, you know, talking about all those awesome partnerships, it just seems like there's also so many women owned businesses, you know, you just rattled off like four, five, six that are that are doing these cool partnerships that are helping to support other businesses and not saying that there aren't male owned businesses that are doing the same thing, but um, it's just very cool that there really seems to be like a big um, cohesion of that, of women owned businesses that are supporting each other. Absolutely. I, it's funny in, in sort of preparing for this podcast a little, I was thinking about the concept in general of the intersection of feminism and food. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I take it for granted that there's so many women in food, at least in in the world I'm in, in Maine, I'm surrounded by female business owners and it, it doesn't seem remarkable to me anymore because it's so normal, which I think is a privilege to, to realize mm-hmm. that. Um, I, yeah, like I work in a kitchen that's managed by women that are fantastic and I'm constantly interacting with other female business owners and we all support each other. The male business owners do too. But I would say that statistically, I feel that I, I just know more female business owners than male business owners. I, I don't know what the actual statistics are in Maine, but I wouldn't be surprised if a majority of food businesses are majority female owned. I feel like with a, a, someone else we were interviewing recently, um, whose episode hasn't aired yet, your episode will air before theirs. Um, Sandy and I, all of a sudden this like dawned on us because um, I've never worked in the food system, not um, as far as like food production or hospitality in Maine. Um, I've worked, you know, doing like some nonprofit work, but Sandy and this other guest were like discussing all these places they had worked and, you know, the chefs and the owners, and they just kept mentioning all these female names. And for me, as someone who hasn't worked in restaurants or on farms or in food production in Maine, it, 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 just slapped me in the face. I was like, wow, those are all women. Like those, those are all separate places and they're all women chefs and they're all women owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm starting to notice that when we do talk to people from Maine, from to women from Maine who work in food or food related industries in Maine, there does seem to be a proportionately um, women are represented more in the food industry here in Maine in ownership or leadership positions than they seem to be in other parts of the United States. We have not fact checked this yet. <laughs> but we're gathering just like when we talk to people from away, not in Maine and people in Maine, um, there seems to be some kind of, I don't know, female lead here in the food system. I agree. And it's all anecdotal for me too, but I, I absolutely feel that in my day-to-day interactions that it's a lot of female business owners. And I, I do kind of wonder if there's something about like 
the main mentality that I don't know, we're just a hearty group of people and we just forge ahead and do what we want and don't let anything stop us. And I kind of think there's an equality in, in Mainers in that, um, I don't know, we're both, you know, it's kind of tough living sometimes. And historically, men and women both do hard jobs and, you know, support the family any way they can. And I think maybe it's sort of an inherited trait that we all feel like we can do anything and we forge ahead and support ourselves and support our families with our own business ideas. And I don't know, it's really wonderful. It feels very supportive here. Yeah, I love that. Now, Sandy and I had the privilege of talking to three women who work for Fork and managing the commercial kitchen part of it, you know, um, in the office and communications and in the day-to-day management in the kitchen itself. Um, And even that was kind of funny that, you know, they were just, it was three women (laughs) that were representing the organization. Not that there isn't male makers and not that there isn't any men on the staff, but um, again, it was just women were disproportionately represented. Um, now, with that and talking about, like, how you got started and you have this, like, really diverse background, um, why did you choose to go with Fork versus, you know, just kind of getting, like, a little a little space of your own um, to function out of? Yeah, it was a number of factors. Um, first and foremost, I mean, financially, it's a way lower investment to start somewhere like Fork, even if you only start there for six months and move on to your own space, but it gives you time to prove your product and your business model without investing in the equipment. So I literally had to buy no equipment. I, you know, maybe some storage bins and a couple small wares, but, you know, they have ovens, mixers, sheeters, um, storage racks, walk-in refrigerators, literally everything you could need. I, I had to spend very little money on equipment to start the business. So that was a big factor is just, you know, the kitchen, obviously you still have to get licensed within the kitchen, but you're almost guaranteed to pass because the kitchen itself is already licensed. Um, so it's a clean place to work that has a lot of benefits for, you know, the, there's a staff that can receive orders for you. They, when you're brand new, they help promote your product at markets. Um, just the community element was a big one for me that you're, brand new starting a business. I I personally didn't know a lot about what I was doing as far as wholesale businesses work. And so um, Cape Whoopies was there. Um, Marsha was super helpful, just giving me advice. Kelly Toll from Pluck Fresh Salsa was there. Um, Ellie Tucker from Joyful Spirit. They were all these like wonderful female business owners that um, were ahead of me on the curve of business already. And I'm sure I, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about and maybe it showed, but they were so kind to me and offered up advice on, um, you know, where to buy packaging, um, the best distributors to source ingredients from, um, they would suggest stores for me to go to, to try to sell my product and give me contacts of people I could try to sell to. They were, and it still happens today. And now when there's a new member, I try to do the same thing and, and help make connections and give advice if it's wanted. Um, and so I think that community element was a really big one for me and it, it's still big today. I, I can't even count the number of people I've met through fork that have made me feel like I'm not working in a void. You know, I, if I were to have just found a kitchen space, I would be there by myself and with the staff producing, but I wouldn't have made the community connections that I've made at fork. I've probably met maybe 50, 60 business owners, not to mention the fork staff and other people that come in with those business owners. And it's opened up a world of opportunity for me. And um, when you're new to having that brand recognition by being associated with fork, um, you know, they help promote your name and get your products out in the world. And um, they hadn't, you know, when we could have in-person events, they had markets and things like that, which now that I'm a little more established, I don't necessarily need those boosts, but when you're first starting out, it's wonderful. Um, so, and yeah, I, I, uh, there's wonderful management there now. Um, and there was a wonderful manager in the last couple of years, Jen Stein, she, she ran her business out of fork and then she became a manager as well. And, um, I believe it was the last two years that she was managing and, and she really, um, turned fork into a incredibly, high functioning, supportive kitchen environment that it still is today with new management. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just always been a very 
supportive community. Um, and I really don't think my business would be where it is now if I hadn't started there. That's so great. We've really just heard that across the board from folks, uh, exactly that, the supportive community, the, the low, um, low barriers to entry, uh, to, to start the business. There's not a huge investment, so you can really uh, do some ex- exploratory time and, um, just all the people really seem to what seem to be what make it as special as it, as it is. Absolutely. It really is the people that make it. And, um, it's also, even as I grow and I've made a lot of good connections already, there's little things about Fork that make it really helpful. You know, if, if, you know, most of the time I sell to either my distributors or I sell directly to the stores. Um, but I have inquiries all the time for people who want to pick up products. Um, and you know, I don't want to have to necessarily be at the kitchen at all hours of day when someone wants to come pick up. And so there's a staff that has regular hours at fork and, you know, they'll receive orders for you or pick, you know, coordinate pickups. Um, they keep the kitchen really clean and they, you know, there's a million little things that they do that, um, you know, when the time comes that I move to my own space because I've outgrown the incubator space, I will, I think I will certainly notice that. I have to pick up that slack myself. (laughs) It's been a wonderful gift for the time being. That's awesome. That's really great. What an awesome resource that we have here in Portland for all those, to help all these wonderful women businesses and and male-owned businesses to have all these great food businesses start. Yeah, I can't imagine if Fork, I mean, it's, you know, we're like, we were named what by Bon Appetit, was it? We're like the top food city in the country. And if, if the top food city didn't have an incubator space for new food businesses, I think it would really be lacking. And, and honestly, you asked one of the, you know, one of the reasons I did come to Fork is that there really weren't that many other options. And I think a lot of people would find the same thing if Fork didn't exist, that it would be hard to start a small business. You know, obviously you can get your home kitchen licensed or you could find a commercial lease, but um, there's very few, there's really no other community workspaces. Um, available and the commercial leases can be really expensive in Portland. Um, so I think we would be missing a lot of products if, if a community kitchen didn't exist in our, in our town. Yeah. We, we've spoken to a few other, um, members too, and they've mentioned like just really subtle things that you might not think about when it comes to starting a business. Like I know one um, of your fellow makers mentioned, um, laundry service that they handle that for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and just how that makes, you know, it's just something you might not consider ahead of time that you need someone to launder your towels <laughs> that you use for cleanup. And um, so I, I just think they offer so much and it, it's just really great. Um, I love hearing about all the different things and how they've helped everybody. Now you're a little bit unique compared to some of our other makers as I think you're the only wholesale. Oh, what made you decide to go wholesale versus retail? Well, again, I I had thought that the wholesale would be sort of a stepping stone to being a retail producer, Um, but it was kind of a shot in the dark. I had these two ideas, the package cracker idea, and then I thought, you know, I've always been making pastries, and maybe I will just provide pastries to local coffee shops, and that will be my business to start, Um, but I had just assumed that that was sort of a saturated market, so the crackers kind of won out. and I didn't know too much about wholesale, but I, I recognized that if I had a wholesale business, I didn't have to have a retail staff or retail facing business, which in my mind, I, I adore wholesale now because a lot of food businesses are, it, there's a lot of burnout. And I know I felt pretty burnt out after working in the food business for a long time. You you have very set hours that can be really long and Oftentimes they're on weekends and nights when, you know, a lot of your friends who aren't in the food business or your family want to see you and want to get together and you kind of miss out on a lot of that the um, socializing because food industry jobs are, are long hours and hard hours. And so wholesale I love because I know how many orders I have every week. Um, I do all my pickups and deliveries on Fridays and I can get those orders done in whatever time frame I want, Monday through Thursday, you know, I could go in at midnight and work till 10 a.m. if I wanted to, or I can just work a regular nine to five if I want. Um, wholesale kind of frees you up to not worry about any um, public facing element and just go in, produce when you want, get it done, get it out, and you're 
free to go on a vacation if you can get everything done by then or a long weekend or, you know, this is the first time I've really taken normal weekends for myself and it doesn't always happen. Sometimes I end up working on the weekends, but I, I have a relatively normal work schedule. I cram a lot in Monday through Friday and then Saturday and Sunday, I try to take some time off. It's, it's lovely. And I don't think that would work if I was trying to do a brick and mortar. That's really cool. I think that that's a good um, note for uh, any aspiring uh, business uh, uh, wannabe owners out there that are listening. Um, I remember hearing something similar to uh, from a woman who about starting a farm. And she was saying, you know, you really got to think about at the beginning, like what kind of person you are and what kind of lifestyle you want to have. Um, she was saying, you know, like her farm, uh, this one example is a smaller farm and she's super personable and just like wants to get out there and wants to be like, she was grew up with this community. She knew all the, all the people there and she wanted to go to the farmer's market and all that. And that was her, her business model. So she was a farmer's market farm. She was direct to consumer farm. She was really into the marketing. They have great logos. She has an awesome Instagram. Like that's what she wanted to do and wanted to put her time into. Um, but then there's, you know, in, in this um, panel that I was listening to, she was explaining that, you know, a lot of, a lot of farmers don't want to do that. It's also typically like a, you know, more of an old school farm and they don't want to be out at the farmer's market twice a week and they don't want to interact with customers all the time. And so a wholesale farm and growing specifically for that, um, would, would be something that you'd want to think about, you know, is, um, you know, what, what kind of things can you grow that are crops can you grow that, um, you know, are more amenable to a wholesale market versus, you know, something much more diversified and um, that you'd want to have at a, at a farmer's market um, operation. So it's just like what you're saying, you know, it's what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? Well, okay, well, I want something a little more stable nine to five that I can just like bake off a whole bunch and package them up and then have a relatively normal weekend, you know, or is it like, no, I want to be out in the fray and I want to be like living the, the, the this life and living the business. And some people really want that. So that's, um, that's very cool to think about, like what kind of lifestyle you want to have and how you can build your business around that. Yeah, absolutely. And I honestly hadn't really considered wholesale that much before I sort of fell into it. And then, you know, I felt like I'd been, the, in my mind, the sort of only idea of a food business I had was some kind of brick and mortar. That's just sort of how I always thought of food businesses is that you feed the public and that's how you do it. And sort of falling into wholesale that way was kind of a aha moment for me realizing that it's sort of, I, I love the food industry and I love baking. And I guess I'd almost resigned myself to always having these insane hours and never having the time to join family and friends for weekend events. And I was like, well, this is just, this is my life now. Um, and so I, it was really kind of wonderful to discover the liberation of, of being a wholesale food producer. I do think if I was starting totally fresh with this concept of wholesale production in mind, I would, I always joke with other producers at Fork that, um, you know, we, we chose like the most laborious products or products that are difficult to ship or fragile or whatever. And I, I think the best wholesale product is one that's endlessly shelf stable that requires minimal handling, quick production, uh, easy packaging, um, you know, I, I handle my dough, I handle my crackers, I package them. There's all these steps that are involved. And I sometimes <laughs> curse myself for not choosing like a spice company or, you know, <laughs> where I, I blend them and I repackage them and then they're shelf stable forever. Um, but if we didn't have people doing the more laborious stuff too, then we'd miss out on a lot of products, I guess. Although I don't know, you were saying about which way direction you wanted the new, um, you know, Mill Cove to go in, you know, your new, your new endeavor. Maybe it's uh maybe it's a spice, you know, something or. Mill Cove spices. Yep. There you go. <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, let's give us a little more of like some fun anecdotes about the business. Um, what are maybe the most the popular of the crackers? Is there something that is more overwhelmingly popular than the other ones? Um, and for you, what's your not even favorite cracker? Because we've we've learned we can't ask people <laughs> to pick their favorite item of the thing that their business is about. They compare them to if you had to pick a favorite child. So we're not going to put you through that. <laughs> um, but since you were previously a baker, what's what's your favorite pastry either to make or to eat? Oh, geez. Um, well, let's see. I think the most popular cracker with the public definitely is the everything 
Um, when I started, I just had the everything and the real dill crackers. And then I added the old salt in last year. Um, and the old salt is quickly vying for, uh, number one with the everything. Um, right. but I think everything's still edging out the old salt. Um, and the dill is interesting. It's kind of always in second place, but there's like a loyal second place fan base for the dill cracker. Some people like love or hate dill as an herb which I did not realize until I made a dill cracker um people are either like oh my god I'm gonna buy all these I never find dill anything and I'm gonna eat them all or they give you like a nasty look and wonder why (laughs) you would put dill in a food product um but I'll never just someone asked me the other day like well it's kind of a pain in the butt to make the dill the dill cracker is a little more finicky and someone's like well if it's not the number one seller and it's more awkward to make like, why don't you just stop making it? But I do have a loyal dill fan base out there, I think. And because it's a vegan product, I like having that um, available to people who don't want to eat butter, even though I love butter, especially mm-hmm. the Casco Bay butter is the best. Um, but yeah, I think it's also nice to have a, a three product line. Um, it stands out better to distributors and stores to have three products um, from each at least three from each vendor. Um, but let's see. Oh man, my favorite pastries to make. I just love, I love having a variety of things to make. I like playing around with laminated doughs like croissant dough, um, or, um, Queen Amon was a really fun pastry to try to make. It's really hard to make, but, uh, that was, that's probably the most challenging and most fun pastry I've worked on in recent history. Can you describe what, uh, I haven't heard of a, a Queen of Mom before. Oh my gosh, it's so delicious. It's um, essentially like a croissant dough in that it's laminated. Um, you know, you, you have your yeasted dough and then your butter block that you laminate the layers into. But with the Queen of Mom, you add a layer of sugar, um, which is really finicky because as soon as the sugar hits the dough, um, even if it's not, it's pretty cold in the kitchen that you're working in, it sort of starts to melt a little and the moisture starts to wick out. So you have to work with it really quickly and carefully, but you essentially laminate sugar into the butter and dough um, layers. So when it, and you, you bake it in this almost a little muffin shape, you fold the corners over. It's a beautiful looking pastry and the sugar caramelizes on the top. And then you have these sweet layers in between the buttery and salty layers. Um, It's from Brittany. And it's just the most decadent, delicious dessert you'll ever have. That sounds amazing. And I will take two, please. I believe you can buy them at Belleville on Monjoy Hill. I haven't even heard of that one. That, or they must be a little bit new. Um, within the last year or two, they're amazing. They do all kinds of different croissants and sort of croissant variations and also pizzas. They have a beautiful aesthetic mm. and really, really good pastries fun this is so educational this whole thing like this every, everything we've been learning I was thinking about when you said that you were you know someone suggested oh well if, you know it's not the top seller and it's hard to do like you know why not maybe get rid of the the dill cracker it made me think about your story how people were just petitioning Nabisco to bring back the pilot cracker which is like you know bland and didn't even mm-hmm. wasn't even that exciting and people were so upset about it and they brought it back a second time so your dill fans would be petitioning you the same way. Like, do not get rid of my dill cracker. Let's hope there's a fan on Shibig Island who would write me a strongly worded letter if I just <laughs> That's so great. Um, well, Nina, this was so fun to learn about your business and all the other history facts that we were able to talk about and learn about some new businesses in town. Uh, where can our listeners find you uh, online and find your crackers? Sure. My website is milkcovebakingco.com and I have a store finder on my website, but um, we're in about 20, 26 Hannafords, um, mostly coastal Maine Hannafords. And then we're in, I mean, we're in over, well over a hundred stores throughout New England. So it's hard to list um particular ones depending on where people are but you know a lot of the littler natural food stores co-ops and that kind of place carry our product and um you can find them online on the store locator um or you can always send me an email i have a contact form on my website as well that's fantastic that's great and then are you on um, instagram facebook yes both of the above at milk cove baking co all right, great. Well, everyone go follow Milk Cove Baking and get some of the delicious um, 
She has all kinds of fun pictures on all on all of her social media, so you can get your get your cracker fix. Um, and for everyone else, um, if you have not already followed Femidish, you can follow Femidish on Instagram and Facebook at Femidish. That's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H. And you can email us if you have questions about any of our guests that we've had on, if you have suggestions for new guests that we should definitely be talking to, um, or if you have questions for some of the, some of the women that we bring on, um, we want to hear from you and hear what you, um, want to, to learn about. So you can email us at femidish at gmail.com and you can find our previous episodes on Spotify and Apple and just about wherever you get your podcasts. And this has been another uh, edition of our Fork Food Lab mini series. And again, uh, Fork Food Lab is a membership-based shared commercial kitchen and food business incubator in Portland, Maine. And we have been highlighting different makers that uh, are at Fork and have gotten their businesses started there. So thank you again, Nina, for joining us. And thank you, Hope, as always. And we will see you all next time. Thank you so much. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you